Welcome to the Dry Bones Ministries podcast, where we strive to provide great preaching and teaching so that listeners will discover or rediscover the goodness, truth, and beauty of our Catholic faith. If you are interested in supporting the work we are doing, visit us at drybonespgh.org or follow us on social media at drybonespgh. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you're inspired, uplifted, and encouraged. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new special Dry Bones Ministries podcast series on a classic work of C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. This is an amazing book that um, I imagine many of you have read before, or maybe a lot of you have just heard of it, and this can be your excuse to enter in and appreciate everything that he has to offer. C.S. Lewis is so good. His mind is incredible. His insight is beautiful. His heart has just profound insights, and he's prophetic as well. I did the work on the Screwtape Letters as a podcast series previously, and that was a great one to appreciate, not only his insights, but man, he just nails the problems that we have in our world today, spot on. And yeah, just to try and sell you all right off the bat on this book, again, it's prophetic and it's so needed now. The Four Loves is built off of this premise that love today, it's one of the most confusing, misunderstood terms that we use. We have all these uh, vague cliches about love is love, love makes a family, love whoever you want as long as you're happy kind of a thing. And, and we don't actually appreciate any distinctions, any distinctions at all to appreciate that there are, that love is complicated, right? There are different types of loves that we would love God differently than we love our parents, than we would love our dog, that we would love our school, that we would love pizza. And so to be able to then figure out, so what are the different loves? And his argument is that what we have for our one word in English, love, the Greeks had four words. Maybe the only wrinkle to that statement is that we might have more than one word for love. We also use the word like, that I I like to do this or I like this person. And that's kind of loosely associated with um, maybe affection. But these four Greek words of storge, which is affection, philia, which is friendship, eros, which is romantic love, and then agape, which is divine love, gives us a full picture of what we mean whenever we use the words love and to be able to use them properly. And so in this book, he's just going to break down the amazing way that each love is distinct. A lot of these loves overlap. A lot of these loves give way uh, to one another. And in this, we'll be able to find not just a path towards, I don't know, greater intellectual knowledge of the distinctions between these terms, but that we ourselves can be immersed into the very meaning in the mission of life, that it is love. That's why we're here, to learn how to love and to do it well. The better that we can do that here on earth, 
the better we'll be prepared for heaven. So maybe a couple introductory remarks I before we dive into our, our first session. My hope is that you'll have a, a chance in in this time to read it yourself and to, to spend the time. It's not a, a large book. Mine has 141 pages. And so, yeah, my hope is that you'll be able to read it along for yourself and then to be able to tune into the podcast. If you're not a big reader or don't have the, the time, I still hope that my own comments, sharing, just like the different things that stick out to me, uh, can be something that you could still turn on and, and follow along. I'm not going to read the book to you on this podcast. I don't think I have that um, authority or the copyright. But yeah, I will read certain passages in bulk that can hopefully give the, the proper context for the point that I'm trying to make. And yeah, so hopefully that can be helpful. I take it for granted that I don't have the same copy of this book as you do. There are a number of different editions. So I'm going to do my best to try and let you know what paragraph I'm, I'm reading from. Um, maybe just by reading the first line of the paragraph. Uh, I was thinking about numbering the paragraphs and kind of doing that. That seems cumbersome and probably won't do that. So uh, forgive me and hang in there as we try and uh, find the the same quotes that, um, that C.S. Lewis is giving us. There are six chapters in this book. It's like, I thought there were four loves. There should be four chapters. There's um, two intro chapters. The one is literally just called the introduction. And the second is called likings and loves for the subhuman. Dun, dun, dun. Like, <laughs> Uh, there's some context that we need to establish before we enter in and, and it'll, uh, I hope and believe makes sense once we get to affection, why we need to set the stage in this way. So with that said, I think we're ready for the introduction. All right. He begins by quoting 1 John 4, 16. God is love. And he has this great admission that whenever he first set off to write this book on love, he thought that that line from 1 John would kind of give him this great platform, this great departure to be able to soar the heights of beautiful love that uh, we know comes from God, that God is love. He is the source of love. It's the love that he offers us, and that's where we need to stay focused. And he came to really be confronted with a, a stubborn, frustrating reality, that it wasn't going to be as simple as he thought of just imitating that that perfect divine love. And he comes to... Uh, encounter this confrontation with first a distinction between gift love and need love. And he says a typical example of gift love would be that love which moves a man to work and plan and save for the future well-being of his family, which he will die without seeing or sharing. 
and of the second, this need love, is that which sends a lonely or frightened child to its mother's arms. A pretty simple distinction, but this will be important and it'll carry through for the rest of the book. Just to appreciate gift love is being able to love from a position of wealth or abundance or surplus. It's that I have something to offer you. And so we see love as being a relationship between two parties and the one has something to to offer and that is the gift love the the gift love we might see in a a parent giving everything that he has to his son we might see it from the position of a teacher or a coach Uh, we might see it as um, even someone who has money giving something to a beggar that is a, a gift love on the other hand we have need love which kind of speaks for itself it's this coming from a position of lack or poverty that i need help and i'm looking for a relationship to help fill this this lack in my own life and maybe just at the outset that we can stop pause and appreciate or ask ourselves uh, which one do we prefer more do we prefer to give or to receive which is easier for us which is more natural I think a lot of us would say that we really appreciate being in the position of the giver to be able to serve and to be able to to help those who are less fortunate or who could really be blessed by us. And why is that? I think everyone would have their own answer to that. I just know so often for me, I I really appreciate feeling needed that, that this person uh, needs me. It's nice to feel needed and that without me, they, yeah, wouldn't be where they are. And so I feel therefore more important and yeah, I like feeling important and I like feeling like I have something to offer and it's hard to feel needy. It's hard to ask for help. Um, and so yeah, a lot of times it's easy to try and avoid being, being dependent, um, and having this having this lack which can be really dangerous that we then would fall into a place of self-sufficiency like i'm gonna do it myself and i'm just gonna build for myself the greatest position of wealth and surplus and knowledge and resources so that i never have to ask anyone for anything and i can be very generous and bless people and it can sound like kind of you know well-intentioned but it's really dangerous too because while we might want to avoid need love or wanting to receive love this is also a really essential part of who we are as humans and so what he goes on to describe is that we don't want to just describe uh, destroy or set set aside this need love for there can be a lot of um, really important blessings by it, um, or even goodnesses in it. So it's not simply selfishness, he says, um, on the paragraph that starts, secondly, thinking about even a child. We wouldn't call him selfish um, or a nuisance because he's needy, 
no, this is just who he is. And this child has is in this position where they are totally dependent upon their parents and others to feed them, bathe them, change them, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And even too with being a, a friend, like there's actually something really strong and courageous about being vulnerable and saying, I'm really lonely. I could really use a friend. I could really use some insight. I don't know what to do here. Can you give me, give me some help? Give me your, your own experience. And in that admission or offering to be able to receive and to let someone else bless me, there's actually something, yeah, really beautiful and good about that. So that's something for us to appreciate in our own journey of love that in our own living out of our poverty that he'll describe here as being innate to who we are as humans, this can be a real opening for relationship. Let's go to this next paragraph. But thirdly, we come to something far more important, says C.S. Lewis. Every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. But man's love for God, from the very nature of the case, must always be very largely and must often be entirely a need love. This is obvious when we implore forgiveness for our sins or support in our tribulations. But in the long run, it is perhaps even more apparent in our growing, for it ought to be growing, awareness that our whole being by its very nature is one vast need. Incomplete, preparatory, empty yet cluttered, crying out for him who can untie things that are now knotted together and tie up things that are still dangling loose. I do not say that man can never bring to God anything at all but sheer need love. Exalted souls may tell us of a reach beyond that. But they would also, I think, be the first to tell us that those heights would cease to be true graces, would become neoplatonic or finally diabolical illusions the moment a man dared to think that he would, that he could live on them and henceforth drop out the element of need. All of this is to uh, conclude what he will then say in the next paragraph, right in the middle. He says, man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. Okay, are you following? So the way that we as humanity, creatures, God's creatures, he is the... He is the creator. He is the author of all reality. Our relationship to him is essentially that of need. It is the only way that we can relate to him. And even as he says at the, at the end, that exalted souls may tell us of a reach beyond that, of like having something to offer him. But we never want to remove the, the need. And, and here it is, right? God doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. He is whole and entire, perfect, simple unto himself. And so our existence doesn't come out of his lack, but it comes out of his overflowing love and goodness. And so for us to think that we have something to offer God is really self-absorbed and missing the truth of who we are and who God is. Now, 
don't misunderstand that. We also know that God loves us. He delights in us and uh, is overjoyed whenever we do give him our lives or our time or our thought or worship. But that comes not from like, I'm lonely and if only someone would worship me or, or something like that. That's not God's interior dialogue in his head. It's out of the fullness that he allows us to share, participate in his life. And so out of our poverty, our dependence on God, right? We are completely contingent upon him to will us into existence. It is only by receiving, right, in our need, love, it is only by receiving from God's gift that now we're free to offer him back what? Only that which he has given us, right? Our breath, our life, our gifts, our family, our efforts, our time, that we can give it back to him, which truly delights him, honors him. And yet if we think that it's uh, without need, we are very, very lost. So we approach God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. A paradox, right? Here's where we need to um, see another distinction that C.S. Lewis will make here. The difference between nearness by likeness and nearness of approach. This idea that our goal is to get as close to God as possible, to be like him. And as creatures, we have to admit we're pretty low on the totem pole in terms of being like God. For there are angels, for instance, that have uh, a much greater intellect and pure will than we have. We are bound to creation, being our soul composite with our body. And so by likeness, we are far off. But is there a difference of a likeness um, or a nearness that can come by approach? Here's the analogy that he offers. Hopefully you caught this. Let us suppose that we are doing a mountain walk to the village, which is our home. At midday, we come to the top of a cliff where we are in space, very near it, because it is just below us. We could drop a stone into it, but as we are no cragsmen, we can't get down. I guess a cragsman is a rock climber. We must go a long way around, five miles maybe. At many points during that detour, we shall statically be farther from the village than we were when we sat above the cliff, but only statically. In terms of progress, we shall be far nearer our baths and teas. And I'll keep reading this next paragraph and then comment. Since God is blessed, omnipotent, sovereign, and creative, there is obviously a sense in which happiness, strength, freedom, and fertility, whether of mind or body, wherever they appear in human life, constitute likenesses, and in that way, proximities to God. But no one supposes that the possession of these gifts has any necessary connection with our sanctification. No kind of riches is a passport to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, are you following? Does that make sense? What he's saying is we as creatures, even if we have um, the greatest of gifts, intellect, um, will, freedom, 
fertility. Those do not guarantee that we will be near to God. And so even angels who have all these things, there's no guarantee that they will be near to God. What do we need to be near to God? Holiness. We need holy, We need to be purified. We need to be sanctified so that we can come to be completely united to him. And how do we do that? We do that through grace. We do that through uh, surrendering our lives to him, following him as a disciple, and allowing him to completely take over our lives. And that is a long journey that uh, coincides with this nearness of approach. And so that is why I think this book is amazing and so needed because this isn't, again, just about intellectual knowledge about different loves. This is about how to be a saint. This is about how to be holy. And here's where maybe I didn't like conclude the thought at the beginning where C.S. Lewis runs into this roadblock. He thought this book on love initially was going to be easy because it was just going to be reflecting, you know, theoretically um, about the divine love, selfless, sacrificial, disinterested. But all of a sudden he recognizes in this next paragraph that the incarnation changes everything. That if our goal is to be like God, that it is sanctification, if it is then imitation, we then need to imitate the God-man. In the second third of this paragraph, um, that next paragraph that starts, at the cliff's top, we are near the village. So two-thirds through that paragraph, it says, Hence, a better writer has said, Our imitation of God in this life, that is, our willed imitation, as distinct from any of the likenesses which he has impressed upon our natures or states, must be an imitation of God incarnate. Our model is the Jesus, not only of Calvary, but of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy and interruptions. For this, so strangely unlike anything we can attribute to the divine life in itself, is apparently not only like, but is the divine life operating under human conditions. Who? There it is, friends. <laughs> The incarnation changes everything. And so if you and I want to imitate God, it's not just imitating the gift love, the selfless, disinterested, not looking for anything. We see that in the word becoming flesh, divinity wedding itself to humanity, that there is not only something good about having a need love, being dependent relying on others, there is something holy about it, that the divine life has come and infused itself in all of our hum human experiences, all of our humanity. And so for you and I to come to nearness of God, we can do that this powerful way through approaching him, by imitating him in all the aspects of our lives, that there's nothing in our human condition that can't be united to him for our own sanctification. This, this is the journey. This is holiness. Uh, yeah, I love it. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. Um, okay, next, next thing. Why is this uh, distinction so important? Because we need to have this 
really important balance of appreciating uh, this love that approaches God and not being not confusing it with um, transforming our own loves into God's themselves. Are you ready? How easy it is for us as humans to start idolizing our own loves, making our own interests, our own relationships, uh, prerogatives, idols in themselves. He says this at the end of the paragraph, I must now explain. He says, if we ignore it, the truth that God is love may slyly come to mean for us the converse that love is God. Does that make sense? If we ignore it, the truth that God is love, it may slyly come to mean for us the converse, that love is God. I'm just going to read that next paragraph, and I think it'll make sense. Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. So think about all human loves. Uh, We haven't gone through them all, but yeah, a human love, a friendship love, a romantic love, a family member, a love of a sport, a love of an instrument, a love of an actor, a love of a whatever it is, fill it in, right? Like good loves, even at the, the height of a, of a love, you can think about taking care of the poor. All of this has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the costs. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. That erotic love and love of one's country may this thus attempt to become gods is generally recognized. But family affection may do the same. So in a different way may friendship I shall not here elaborate the point, for it will meet us again and again in later chapters. Um, He won't elaborate, but I I will a little bit. Yeah, this is is so easy. I just think, yeah, even in good friendships, right? How easy it is for something that is, yeah, good, beautiful, fruitful to just turn in on itself and all of a sudden be... uh, perverted or exclusive and actually like detrimental and and all of a sudden there can yeah be a real a real twisting of it romantic loves even family loves yeah that we can come to uh, i don't know overemphasize the our family and yeah come to to see it even as a god can be very easy as a priest I love serving people. I love, um, yeah, I love helping others. But that in itself can become a God in a way that it would claim a divine authority in itself. And if God were calling me in a different direction, that I could see, right? Like, but this is, this is what I'm doing for you, God. This is this like, this is the, this is your ministry that I'm doing for you. And it's like, but I want you to do this. And it's like, well, who's God? Is it my love or is it God himself? And so anyway, yeah, just for us to kind of point out here. And as he said, he's going to get into it. 
more throughout the book about how, yeah, how easy it is. And this is just our fallen tendency in our human nature, how easy it is for us to idolize, turn anything into a God, even things that are good in itself. Okay. In, in the rest of this introductory chapter, what he does is emphasize this, uh, this appreci- appreciation that, well, he started off thinking that this was going to be, um, yeah, approaching God just by likeness, um, imitating his gift love, the selfless. What he comes to see is that we have, we have to have a new appreciation of the human condition and even of this need love, the natural loves. And so this is this great kind of departure for the rest of the book that affection, that friendship, that even romantic love, they all have great access for us to find God there in each of these. Because Jesus Christ himself loved with affection, loved as a friend, even loved us with a passionate romance. And to be able to really appreciate each of those gives us a glimpse into the divine life and helps us to make sure we get these loves right so that we can be holy. I don't know about you. I'm ready for the rest of the book, but we're going to stop there for our introductory chapter. Thanks for tuning in. God bless you. Let's keep each other in, in prayer. And I look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. To learn more about Drybones Ministries, events, and initiatives, and to support this podcast, go to drybonespgh.org. Thanks, and God bless you.